This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Lynn Freeman, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Time now to examine anxiety in children and how parents and caregivers can give support to anxious young ones. My guest is Wellington clinical psychologist Saab Johal. Uh, welcome back to Nine to Noon, Saab. Sure, Lynn, thank you for having me. I can tell you by the number of emails and texts coming in that you have really hit a nerve with this issue of anxiety and children described as a as a pandemic in its own right, really. Why why has anxiety in children gone up so much recently? Yeah, it does look like there's been a, a rapid increase in just anxiety but mental health issues in our children and young people over the, the last ten years, roughly doubling. Um, that's the numbers that we're looking at really. Um, and I'm conscious that today, you know, this might be um, a difficult day for uh, parents and caregivers and children. Um, it's the first day back for school and kindy for everybody who's in alert level two outside of Auckland today. So I anticipate there's been a few tears as a result of separation anxiety, which is one way in which um, it's manifested in children. And that might be, you know, a refusal to go to school or things like reporting a sore head or stomach. Uh, uh, this is the way it shows itself. Yeah, we have seen this kind of rise in anxiety, and it's difficult to put a particular uh, one particular source on that. There's lots of things that might contribute to it. There's you know, young people today might be more likely to express distress. That's one hypothesis. But certainly, we've got lots of things that are happening upstream. So, stressed parents living in um, precarious conditions, inequity in housing costs or financial crisis. You know, all of these things contribute to parents being stressed and then that being difficult for children to be in that environment. Or we've got uh, increased exposure to um, intergenerational trauma. Um, and we've also got things like climate change. And, you know, some people are, are reporting that, you know, their children are really experiencing this feeling of being in a world that feels dangerous and it feels like, well, where's my place in, in this world and how do I manage the, the feelings of disturbance that I feel that um, we're constantly being talked about? And it can show itself in lots of different ways, like um, intense anxiety. I've talked about this kind of like stomach, stomach aches, these sort of like bodily symptoms, but things like... Um, reacting badly to routine changes, showing itself in sleep troubles or bedwetting, all of these different ways in which it shows itself in a, in a child's life. And some children will be more vulnerable to this emotionally than others, clearly. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, we know that some of the kids are definitely not okay and are struggling and that we have these certain aspects of contemporary life that are making them less all right. Uh, and it might be that actually it's making particular children even more vulnerable. Um, so it might be that um, children who are struggling and finding it difficult then retreat to more to the online world. And then when we encourage them to engage in offline experiences and interactions, then they find it even more difficult than they may have done before. I was just thinking actually on those kind of COVID walks, looking at the little kids and, and they're looking up at faces under masks, you know, and social mm. distancing even from children. That's a very potent early memory, isn't it? Yes, it is. I was just talking with um, our middle child who's four years old 
uh, and you know a lot of her questions or uh, queries or comments are after COVID is gone. You know, so it's very much embedded in her kind of uh, life over the last eighteen months uh, as part of you know thinking about what's going on now and and what what might happen afterwards. And they put on masks and uh, get in the car not because they have to, but because they see everybody else doing it as well. So you can see that you know we're trying to kind of normalize and 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 not um, make it an anxiety provoking uh, experience. But you know there are difficulties such as you know they can't go and see their grandparents in, in England and may not be able to do that for a few years. So understanding how the parents are taking that news and the disturbance that we see in the world right now then gives us a clue as to what might be going on for children too. You mentioned before that, say, stomach upsets are not uncommon way that anxiety can manifest itself. But we're, we're now getting um, messages in from listeners with other examples. Uh, one parent says recently my 12 year old daughter pulled all her eyelashes out for example is another kind of um, behavior asking for any advice uh, they say we have talked about different coping strategies and, and written a list of ways to cope and distract when she's feeling stressed is this is this an uncommon behavior or common behavior um that one is you know certainly hair pulling um i'm not so sure about eyelash specifically but hair pulling is not that uncommon um you know often people find the physical stimulation of something going on in their body um, more distracting and absorbing than perhaps the emotional experiences that they're going through. So often this can result in you know, people doing things to their bodies that are preferable to experiencing that emotional pain. And that's, you know, it's very difficult for the child. It's very difficult for the parent to see that too. But I would definitely recommend getting you know professional advice in that particular case but we we know that um you know one of the things that we try to do as parents is that we don't want to see our children in distress uh, and so we can do all kinds of things in order to prevent that from happening and some of that and i'm not saying that in this case at all um but some of that can sometimes unwittingly create a cycle in which actually we're not decreasing the likelihood of anxiety, but we're just kind of putting it off um, in order to get the short-term win of decreasing what's going on in the moment, but we're maybe putting it off for a, for a later date and storing up problems for the future. Uh, another text, and this, this uh, the ideal, you know, even young children trying to think there's some kind of ideal they, they should be. Uh, this listener says, my seven-year-old daughter struggles with perfectionism with most things mm. that she does. She refuses help, she rejects suggestions or solutions, and her perceived failures seem to affect her self-worth. She seems compelled to dwell on negative thoughts about herself, which is now disrupting her ability to self-regulate and to sleep. How do we balance being empathetic whilst also not encouraging her feeling like she's a, a victim, uh, getting lots of attention. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that what we were trying to do here is to not necessarily eliminate anxiety um, because actually anxiety is um, it's a normal emotion. It's there around all the time. But what we don't want to do is to let it uh, spiral up into something that's a, a disorder. Um, anxiety is a useful, necessary response to stress and uncertainty. So what we need to do then is if we're starting really upstream, just for a second, let's talk about that. What we want to do is 
when we're talking with our children to try to normalize communication, especially about emotions, so that your child feels comfortable coming to you with problems or for support to start off with. If your child does appear anxious, then having a think about what has changed in their lives in recent times. And to a certain extent, parents have to do the thinking for the child at that point. Um, certainly, you know, if you've got that communication with the child, you, you're getting clues as to what might be going on, what's changed. But what the goal here is not to eliminate anxiety, but to help the child to manage it. And none of us wants to see a child unhappy. But the best way to help a child to overcome anxiety isn't to try to remove the stresses that trigger it. It's to help them to learn, to tolerate their anxiety and to function as well as they can. So being realistic, um, but also encouraging them that they can still do things even when they're feeling anxious. And as a byproduct of that, what they'll start to learn is that the anxiety is, number one, tolerable. And number two, it starts to decrease or fall away over time the more they get experience of doing things whilst the anxiety is still around. Well, we'll come back to the um, concept of, of COVID impacting on children, if that's um, okay with you. And this listener says, we live in Auckland. What if your child doesn't want to go outside because he thinks he will get COVID and he's scared to get the vaccine? I'm worried about the, his transition back to school too. My son, in particular, his anxiety has grown a lot this year. Uh, so a plea for help there from that listener. Yeah, that's that's tricky. And, and I'm sure there's lots of parents who are going to be going through that right now and in the next few weeks as we figure out what's going on in Auckland. Um, one of the things that I would um, add to what I've already said is that we don't want to reinforce the child's fear. So what we don't want to be saying or with, with our tone of voice, body language, is that maybe that this is something that you should be afraid of, given all the protections that we're putting in place. At the same time, we also have to be realistic in that there is a small chance, but we're doing everything that we can. And even if we do become ill, then there's a really, really good chance, an excellent chance that we won't become too ill. But one of the things that we can do is to try to keep the anticipatory period short. So this is the, the length of time before what it is that we're trying to do. So Because when we're afraid of something, the hardest time is just before we do it. So another rule of thumb for parents to really think about is to try to eliminate or to reduce down that anticipatory period. So don't have a really long ramp-up time where you're going to be talking about what it is that's going to be coming up, which that child is finding anxiety provoking. So if the child is nervous about going to school and getting ready for that and all the things that they're going to need to do or a vaccination, then we don't want to launch into that discussion about it hours before you go because it's likely to get your child even more keyed up. So try to shorten that period to a minimum possible. And it's not just this particular example, but for other examples that people might be struggling to. Can you mention that sore, sore stomach as a as a common um, symptom? Uh, Ali says, Look, I have a question. What is a good approach to help our 11-year-old son who seems to be getting more anxious and now has a near constant sore stomach? Yeah, I mean, if it's constantly going the whole time, then, you know, it's worth getting it checked out um, by, by a doctor to make sure that there's nothing else physically going wrong. But I think what you, you need to do is to, and it's difficult again, is, is respecting the feelings of disturbance, however they show themselves. And often children who perhaps 
don't feel comfortable or don't have the language to express what's going on emotionally feel more comfortable with the bodily um, expression of that um, because that's what gets through um, and also gets them what they want to do, which is to avoid the anxiety-provoking experience. So I guess the thing to remember here is that just because you're validating that they're feeling distressed or there's something going on for them which they're finding difficult, it doesn't mean that you agree with what their solution is. So if the child's terrified about whatever it is that they're going to do, going to the doctor or going to school, um, you don't want to belittle their fears, but you also don't want to amplify them. So you want to listen and be empathetic and help them to understand what, what help that helps you to understand whatever they're anxious about. But you want to encourage them to feel that they can face their fears. The message you want to send is, I know you're scared and that's okay. And I'm here and I'm going to help you to get through this. And what we want to do there is not to ask leading questions. So not asking things like, are you feeling anxious about going to school or the big test or whatever it is that they're going to do? It's because we want to avoid feeding that cycle of anxiety. So asking open-ended questions such as, how are you feeling today about such and such, then gives you a window as to what the possibilities might be to have different conversations. I'm sure your advice would be along the same lines, uh, but I mean, these are such different um, presentations of anxiety that I think it's worth sharing with the listeners to say that it's not just one thing. There are many ways that anxiety can, man can manifest. Uh, this listener says, my eight-year-old daughter has suffered anxiety in the past with constantly washing her hands. However, that past, she now seems to be having trouble with her vision. Uh, it scares her and she thinks that things are very far away. Uh, the listener says she was sick with a virus just before lockdown and I'm thinking it's her anxiety raising its head again due to being run down and in lockdown. Uh, they say she is extremely social and I think lockdown has more effect than we think. And that's that's fair comment too, isn't it? You know, kids who are naturally social. This has been incredibly tough. Yes, absolutely. Um you know, kids who are going through particularly, you know, when they're going through that sort of like tweens age you know, 10, 11, 12, and, and a little bit older, where their, their peer group has now become more important or is starting to become more important in their lives, then being deprived of that relationship or having that relationship going through the channel of online media, whereas actually they prefer or are used to having a lot more face-to-face -face contact, that's a really big change for children. And if that goes on for a period of time, then that's difficult for them to cope with. And um, that's where we are at right now in, in the world. Um, and in New Zealand, but it's something that we, we need to bear in mind. How do we keep up those that contact and how do we help them to get back into that social milieu if they're feeling a little bit hesitant or they're feeling a little bit out of touch with what's been going on with their friends' lives as well? I just want to touch upon um, this idea, I think, that might be helpful for parents of um, why it is that they find themselves perhaps bending over a little bit just to kind of like ease the child's experience. You know, this kind of, I, I just want to make it easier for them. So things like, you know, if a child's afraid of dogs and a com what's called an accommodation might be walking them across the street so that they can avoid one. Or if a child is scared of the dark, it might be letting them sleep in your bed. We know that the vast majority of parents of anxious children engage in this kind of accommodation. And, you know, this is trying to make the world easier for that child. But the everyday efforts that we might make to prevent our children's distress, minimising things that worry them or scare them, assisting them with difficult things, rather than letting them struggle a little bit, may not actually help them to manage it in the long term. 
And one of the big reasons is we as parents and caregivers are really time pressured. And that's what enables us and, and makes us feel like we just have to kind of get this task done so that we can move on to the next thing. And we help our children to kind of get this done and then move on to the next thing. And so if we're not careful, we're setting up a framework where we're getting short-term gains, but we have longer-term pain for the child. And it's absolutely reasonable that parents want to accommodate a child who's in distress. And it's a powerful driver to try and do it in that time. But one of the things that we need to do is then to really think about how do we set up a virtuous cycle where we enable the child to sit with that anxiety, support them and scaffold them through it and so that they can learn to support themselves a little bit with you as a team member rather than taking over and managing that anxiety for them. We've just got a couple of minutes, uh, but I think this is an important one to throw in, and this is about um, teenage behaviour, so um, a little bit older than the age group we've been talking about, from the parents of a 17-year-old who's a high achiever, head girl, high academic grades, struggling with routines, sleeping in, um, eating very headstrong. Um, we believe she's struggling with anxiety, but she says she's not anxious at all. How do you approach a teenager with what appears to be anxiety when they don't want that label? And that word label is really important. Yeah, it, it is. It can feel really pejorative or dismissive of what that child experiences or all the labels that come along with, with you know, being labelled as having anxiety. I think one of the things that um, we need to bear in mind is that you know, there's lots of biological changes that are going on for, for teenagers, not just hormones in terms of sex development and, and, and all those things around identity and how it is that people relate to each other, but also things like sleep. Uh, you know, and and the shifted timetable, whereas actually teenagers look like they're not quite uh, as cognitively with it until later on in the day. Uh, and then that might have, she may have noticed that, um, and that might mean that she doesn't perform at the level that she's perhaps used to, and there are some worries around that. And there's all kinds of messages that may be being set or sent through social media or expectations as to what young women are supposed to be like at 17 years old in that particular school or in, in that culture that the, the child is existing in. So it's it's complex. I would, again, talk about, you know, perhaps changing the language. If it's not anxiety, then what is it that this child's experience of the world is like? Uh, and what is it that they wish to be able to do that they seem that they're not able to do or they're missing from the past that they wish to bring into their life um, in the present and, and set as a trajectory for the future? Thank you so much. So I really appreciate that. Wellington clinical psychologist Saab Johal.